Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. In this episode of Strange Matters, we will be going over an infamous murder case known as the Gregory Affair, which details the disturbing murder of a young French boy, Gregory Villemin. In this unsolved case that still continues to intrigue the French public to this day, a family would be taunted with threats of vengeance from an unknown individual who was simply called the Crow. This person would seemingly carry out his revenge by abducting and murdering the family's four-year-old son, Gregory. After this grisly crime, a web of accusations and suspects would spin out of control, which would cause even more deaths in the chaotic aftermath. In this episode, I will be detailing the history of the case, the strange and subpar investigation that followed, and the possible suspects of who could have carried out the terrible crime. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to first say that I'm very glad to finally be back making new episodes for Strange Matters. I had not planned to take this much time off, as originally I just figured to put the podcast on pause over the holidays. But as it happens with life, things kept coming up to delay being able to produce new content. However, I am now excited and anxious to catch back up and start making new and interesting and intriguing episodes for all the listeners out there. As always, I wanted to give a big thanks to all the people who support the podcast over on Patreon, as their generous donations help keep the podcast running. The podcast is paused now through this month, but we'll pick back up at the beginning of March. Also note that the next two episodes coming out in the next day or two will be exclusive for those supporters on Patreon. Over the past few months, podcast has picked up a few new patrons, so I'd like to thank our newest supporters, Brody, Kyle, Lisa, Maggie, Joe, Luke, and Liam. And now, onto the murder case of Gregory Villeman. This story would take place in the fall of 1984, in La Pange's in France. The Villeman family lived there, a large and extended family headed by Albert Villeman which included his son, Jean-Marie, and his own family. The Villemin family was very expansive and included more than a hundred siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and grandparents. Jean-Marie worked as a factory supervisor, though the terrible crime that would eventually tear his family apart would take place in 1984, the Villemins would be haunted and threatened for quite a while before that. For several years, the various members of the Villeman family would receive hundreds of anonymous letters and angry, threatening phone calls. Albert Villeman would be the first of the family to start receiving these harassing letters and phone calls, though as time went on, his son, Jean-Marie, would become the main target. The police would attempt to tap Albert's phone in an attempt to try and figure out who was making the calls, but strangely, during this time, the phone calls just abruptly ended. From this point on, the harasser would shift to sending anonymous letters to the family. Who this person was remained a mystery to the family, and would only be known as the Crow. Though no one in the family quite knew who the Crow was, the Crow apparently knew them all very well, and hated them with a passion. Much of his hatred seemed to be directed at the son of Albert, Jean-Marie Villemin, whom the Crow would disdainfully refer to as the Little Boss. In the letters to Albert, the Crow urged him to disown Jean-Marie. As the years went on, the Crow would continue to harass and threaten the family, 
even going so far as to say that he would murder them in an act of revenge. Again, what this revenge was supposedly in need of was mostly unknown, just as with the identity of the person making the threats. While the Villeman family couldn't determine the exact identity of the crow, they knew it had to be someone close, someone with access to personal information among the circle of the family. The family patriarch Albert Villeman would say, He was near us, that is certain. Every single word we said at home, he knew. The dozens of members of the Villeman family knew about the crow, and many of them received their own phone calls or letters over the years. The different members of the family would come up with their own suspects of who they thought was behind this grand harassment scheme. But the true identity of the crow remained a mystery all those years. The only thing that was absolutely clear was that the crow wanted revenge, and that he passionately hated Jean-Marie Villemin. On October 16th of 1984, Jean-Marie Villemin's four-year-old son Gregory was playing out in the family yard. Gregory's mother Christine was in the house, ironing clothes and listening to the radio. Unbeknownst to Christine inside the house, at around 5 p.m. that day, someone took Gregory. Shortly after this occurred, the young boy's uncle, one of the brothers of Jean-Marie, received a phone call. The uncle would find out that the person calling was the family's longtime nemesis, the crow. However, this time he wasn't calling for a threat or to again tell them of his hatred. Instead, the caller said, I have taken the boy of the chief. I have thrown him into the Valone. The Valone River was a small stream that ran through the wooded countryside. After the uncle notified the police of the disturbing phone call, and it was determined by Jean-Marie that the boy was in fact missing from his house, an investigation to the river was conducted. Several hours later, a dark discovery was made. In the shallow river, four-year-old Gregory's body was found, about four miles downstream from the town of the Ponges. The young boy's hands and feet had been bound in rope, and a wool hat had been pulled over his face. The family was devastated of the death of young Gregory. Without a doubt, the family knew who had committed the atrocity, the crow. But the questions as to who the crow was, or why they were still doing this, plagued the Villemans. The day after the kidnapping and the murder of Gregory, his father and mother received a letter. It was, of course, from the crow, and it read, I hope that you will die from sorrow, boss. Even your money cannot give you your son back. This is my vengeance. Gregory Villeman would be buried in the family's church cemetery, along with his stuffed toy monkey named Kiki. At the funeral, his mother Christine would cry out, My love, come back. Do not go away, Gregory, before eventually fainting. As could be expected, the murder of the young child and the strange circumstances surrounding the Villeman family brought on a sizable police force tasked with investigating the unusual case. The identity of this crow person was still unknown, but it was thought that with the amount of personal information that the Crow knew about the Villeman family, that it was someone close, if not someone actually inside the family. Their need for revenge towards Jean-Marie also remained an unknown, but it was figured that it had to be a deep and personal hatred for this person, to not only continually antagonize him and his family over a several-year stretch, but to be able to hold a hatred that would eventually culminate in the abduction and murder of his innocent child. As news of this horrible crime spread, both law enforcement and the media descended upon the small French town. 
over 50 police officers would arrive to help in the investigation, though nearly double that number and reporters also showed up from all over the nation to try and get the scoop on what was behind this mysterious and intriguing murder. Many of the local prosecutors were unprepared for a crime of this magnitude, and the investigation lacked cohesion. Even worse, throughout the early stages of the investigation, several prosecutors and officers, enjoying the spotlight they were receiving from the media, leaked confidential information about the case just to become part of the growing national headline. The autopsy of young Gregory showed that the cause of death came from drowning, along with exposure to the near-freezing cold water. There were no bruises on Gregory or signs of abuse or trauma. However, of the experts who took part in the autopsy, there were disagreements on where Gregory died. While some stated that he had drowned in the river, several other pathologists disagreed. Because of the lack of microscopic organisms found in the water in Gregory's lungs that was found in the samples of the river water, they believed that the boy was first drowned in regular tap water, perhaps in a tub or a bucket. It would then be after this that the killer transported the body and threw Gregory into the river. Which of these two versions of the cause of death would never be definitively determined? A few days later, a possible clue was found when several officers found a hypodermic syringe and an empty vial of insulin near the riverbank where Gregory was found. It could be possible that the killer used an injection of insulin to render Gregory unconscious, and that this method would not be detectable during the autopsy. Unfortunately, none of the pathologists had thought to look for needle marks on Gregory's body before he was buried, so whether this syringe was in fact used on the boy or not could not be known for sure. With pressure and attention on the police increasing, they quickly sought out to find the culprit. They first accused a man named Bernard LaRoche, who was one of Jean-Marie Villemin's cousins. Though Bernard and Jean-Marie had been friends and played together as children, as the two became adults, they would grow apart, and their relationship would break down. Bernard made no secret that he had issues with Jean-Marie and the rest of the Villemin family. Shortly after the murder of Gregory, a reporter asked Bernard about the tragedy. Bernard angrily shouted, They got what they deserved. They've paid for what they've done. I'm the poor stupid fool, because each time the villains need me, I come. But they never invite me over to their house on Sundays. The police were first tipped off to Bernard as a possible suspect from his sister-in-law. Marielle Boll, who was 15 at the time, told the police after interrogation that Bernard had picked her up from school that day. They then drove to the house of Jean-Marie Villemin, where Bernard saw Gregory outside the house and told him to get in. After the boy was in the car, Bernard drove the two kids to the river, where only he and Gregory got out for a walk. A short time later, only Bernard would come back to the car. A series of handwriting tests were conducted, where experts concluded that his writing style was fairly similar to the letters the Crow sent the Villemin family. However, Bernard vehemently denied having anything to do with this awful crime, and though he had personal issues, he would never do anything like that against Jean-Marie or the family. Shortly thereafter, Bernard's sister-in-law recanted her testimony against him, saying that she only came up with the story because of the constant pressure and intimidation of the police officers who were interviewing her. 
With nothing else to really go on, and with only an inconclusive writing test and a seemingly coerced testimony available as evidence against him, the French police would release Bernard Laroche from custody on February 4, 1985. Jean-Marie, still grief-stricken over the loss of his son and the lack of any other suspects in the case, held to the belief that his cousin Bernard was in fact the man responsible for the death of his son. Jean-Marie knew Bernard held anger against him personally, and he had heard from the media some of the antagonizing comments that Bernard had made against his family. He was convinced that Bernard was the man who had murdered his son. Jean-Marie made a public statement in front of several reporters that he would not let Bernard get away with the crime, and that if the police did not arrest him again, that he would be forced to take matters into his own hands and get revenge of his own. In the meantime, the prosecutors took the case away from the local officers who had turned up nothing so far and turned it over to the national police. The new investigators collected letters and papers from other family members, all with the intent to figure out if any of them could be the crow. The handwriting of all the villamens was compared and studied by five experts, and they came to another bizarre and disturbing conclusion. Out of all the family members, the experts and police agreed that young Gregory's mother and Jean-Marie's wife, Christine Villamen, was the most likely author of all the letters sent to the family over the past years. The thought that Christine could have been the crow all along was an unusual theory for the police, but since they had no other leads at the time, they prepared to move on with the information. During a search of the Villamen household, the police found several strands of rope in the attic that was similar to the rope found wrapped around Gregory's hands and feet. Jean-Marie and Christine denied ever having the rope in the attic, and later on, some would believe that the police actually planted the rope there as evidence to use against the person who they now believe was the prime suspect. The police would collect testimony from several of Christine's co-workers, and a number of them said they saw her mailing a letter at the local post office. This was during the evening of Gregory's disappearance, when she claimed to have been at the house the whole time. Also during questioning, Christine Villeman could not remember what radio program she was listening to during the time that Gregory was being taken. Though the evidence against her was rather weak, the police were convinced that she was the crow, and made no attempt to keep this belief from the press. The media quickly painted Christine as an evil, murderous mother who held a deep anger for her husband and killed Gregory to get back at him. A well-known author at the time visited the town, and without talking to Christine or anyone else in the family, beyond digging up the basic current rumors of the case, wrote a scathing article pronouncing her guilty, which further shaped public opinion against her. Shortly after the investigation and media had turned against his wife, and several weeks after Bernard LaRoche was released from police custody, Jean-Marie Villemin made good on his promise of revenge. Over the past month, his own anger towards his cousin Bernard had continued to simmer and grow more intense, aided further by the fact that reporters were constantly feeding him rumors that the police and the prosecutors were attempting to cover up Bernard's involvement in his son's death, by instead trying to implicate his wife Christine. In the early morning of March 29th of 1985, Jean-Marie calmly and patiently waited outside the house of Bernard LaRoche. Eventually, the front door opened, and the unsuspecting Bernard said goodbye to his wife and father-in-law, and stepped out. Jean-Marie walked up to block his path, pulled out a recently purchased shotgun, and blasted Bernard at close range. 
The gunshot wound was fatal, and Bernard quickly died. Jean-Marie was arrested by the police and was charged with murder, for which he was sentenced to five years in prison. During his trial, Jean-Marie would say, The crow said I would die of grief. Maybe. But I wanted to have him first. It's true. I wanted to have him. During the trial of Jean-Marie for the murder of his cousin, Bernard LaRoche, Bernard's widow stated that she did not really blame Jean-Marie for what he did. Rather, she places the blame on the incompetent investigation and on the media for turning the crime into a national story, placing intense pressure and stress on Jean-Marie. The widow said about Jean-Marie in court, One must be human in this affair. He is not a killer. He's a victim. For her part, Bernard's widow, Marie Ange, would successfully sue the French state for failure to prevent her husband's death. While Jean-Marie was arrested for the murder of his cousin Bernard Laroche, his wife Christine Villemin was also eventually arrested and charged with the murder of their son Gregory. While the handwriting experts agree that her writing was about as near a match as they could get for the letter sent by the Crow, at the time they really had no other pieces of strong evidence against her. So the police had no way of moving forward with that line of investigation, and just as with the late Bernard LaRoche, Christine Villemin was also eventually released and cleared of charges of the murder. Jean-Michel Lambert, the first prosecutor in charge of the case, remained convinced of Christine Villemin's guilt, and for years afterwards was adamant that she was the crow and the person who had murdered Gregory. However, others had criticized Lambert as being inexperienced and in over his head, taking control of the high-profile case. Years down the line, experts would point out several errors that Lambert made that perhaps led to the confusion and inconclusive nature of the case, such as his decision to stop pathologists from taking any more than just a few samples during young Gregory's autopsy. Both the story of Gregory's murder and the chaotic aftermath enthralled the nation, the Gregory Affair, as it became termed, was a popular crime story, and many newspapers and media outlets ran as much as they could about the case. Between the mysterious and haunting crow, the death of an innocent boy, the intense family feuding, and the rampant gossiping of the small town, the press turned the Gregory Affair into a one-of-a-kind story that swept across France. The reporters and newspapers were all too happy to keep the nation up to date with the latest rumors and leads involved in this twisted case. Marielle Boll, Bernard LaRoche's sister-in-law, held fast that her initial testimony was forced by the police. She would later go on to say that she took the bus home from school the day of Gregory's murder, and that during the time when Gregory was supposedly kidnapped, she saw Bernard LaRoche watching TV with his son. However, Muriel's bus driver would say otherwise, claiming that she was not on the bus that day. There was also a neighbor who claimed to have seen a mustachioed man and a red-haired girl parked in the car outside of the Villeman household, the descriptions that fit Bernard LaRoche and Muriel Boll. There's also information that came from a nurse who treated Muriel Boll's diabetic mother in the early 1980s, testifying that she had shown Muriel how to administer insulin, However, the nurse could not remember if this took place before or after Gregory's death. It does have to be noted that due to the lacking information found in the autopsy, the police can't even be sure if the insulin was even used on Gregory, which would make this testimony meaningless. Also, though perhaps irrelevant, it would later be determined that this same nurse was also having an affair with one of the local police officers who was investigating the crime. 
Christine Villamen would angrily denounce accusations from the four handwriting experts that concluded that she was the author of the letter that the Crow sent to the family's household the day after Gregory's death. Christine would point out that the test wasn't entirely conclusive, as only four of the five handwriting experts would say that she was a match. As for the co-workers who said that they saw her at the post office on the evening of Gregory's death, Christine contends that they are confused about what day that was, and it was only pressure of the police that made them say it was the day of the murder. The investigations and court trials turned into a national attraction. People from across the country came to the small town to take tours of the prominent locations involved, such as the Villaman house where Gregory was kidnapped, to his final resting place in the cemetery. Large crowds waited outside the courthouses, hoping to get a chance of finding their way into the courtrooms. One tourist who was questioned about visiting Gregory's gravestone said to a reporter, I came because it interested me. How can you not be interested? After all the talk in the newspapers and on television, it's impossible to stay away. Unfortunately, as with many complicated crimes that take place in small towns that become high-profile cases, the police and justice system would be harshly criticized for how it handled the investigation of the murder of Gregory Villamin. It is believed that the police pressured witnesses into giving false information in attempts to create suspects, such as when Bernard's young sister-in-law was coerced into making up a story so the police could arrest him as a suspect, all of which would set off a chain of events that would eventually lead to Bernard's murder. There were also cases of reporters using the police as a way of gaining access to the Villaman family for exclusive interviews, and of the police telling the media sensitive information that should have stayed confidential. The courtrooms were turned into a circus of yelling and heated debates, as witnesses with conflicting testimony would occasionally be brought in together, which provoked angry disputes. During these intense moments, it was said that even sometimes the judge and the jury would chime in and join in the harsh debating going on between the witnesses. Paul Prompt, who was the attorney for the LaRoche family, said about the case in its entirety, It's stupidity. All the mistakes in an investigation that could have been made have been made here. Likewise, the Villamin family lawyer, Henry Garrard, said, The institutions only function if the people in them function. In this case, the people did not function. For years afterwards, the Gregory Affair would be a popular crime story in France, but it has still remained a mystery for decades. In the 2000s, the case would be reopened with the hope that new modern technology could provide a breakthrough. In 2000, DNA testing was performed on stamps sent with the anonymous letters from the Crow, but these turned out inconclusive. In 2008, DNA testing was done on the rope that was used to bind Gregory during his death, as well as several more letters. These turned out inconclusive. More DNA testing was done in 2013 on Gregory's clothing and his shoes, but once again, they turned out inconclusive. It seemed that no new evidence would be found and the case continued to stagnate. However, in 2017, the case would spring back to life when the police suddenly made three arrests. Marcel Jacob, the uncle of Jean-Marie Villemin, and his wife Jacqueline, was taken into custody by the police, as well as Jeanette Villemin, the half-sister of Jean-Marie. Prosecutor Jean-Jacques Bosque said in a statement that the arrest targeted people very close to the heart of this case and aim to clarify certain points and to provide answers to questions we have. Terry Moser, who's the current lawyer of Gregory's parents, 
said that these arrests were a giant step on the path of the truth. The arrests were on charges of being an accomplice to murder, failing to denounce a crime, and failing to help someone in danger. During this latest push in the investigation, over a hundred witnesses were interrogated, with some of them being interviewed for the very first time. Thousands of letters sent by the Crow were also analyzed. With the new arrests and possible leads in the case, the story of Gregory Villeman once again entered national headlines. This new push for the truth would add yet another disturbing twist to the story, however, as with the renewed efforts of the investigators in the case, came back renewed criticism of the original investigation, including that of prosecutor Jean-Michel Lambert. The media would put out excerpts of the personal journal of Judge Simon, with Judge Simon being the one who took up the case after Judge Lambert. Judge Simon's journal back in 1987 were very critical of Lambert, stating in one section, One remains confused before the deficiencies, the irregularities, the faults, or the intellectual disorder of the Judge Lambert. I am in the presence of miscarriage and all its horror. Overcome with grief and disappointment, Judge Jean-Michel Lambert would write a farewell letter in which he would cite that the pressure from the reopening of the case was too much for him. Judge Lambert would be found dead in his home, determined to have committed suicide. The Villeman family lawyer, Terry Moser, would say about learning about this newest death, I am devastated. It is infinitely sad. I will remember him as a man who was confronted with a difficult file, which he could not control and who was caught up in an impressible vertigo. I have no animosity towards him. I criticize the conclusions he has drawn from his education, but I will not criticize the man. In 2017 and 2018, Yet another twist in the case would occur when anonymous letters began showing up to the prosecutors in charge of the case, as well as several other magistrates responsible for files related to the investigation. The letters claimed to be from an anonymous crow. The initial suspicion was that this could be the very same crow who had been silent for decades, the one who had haunted the Villeman family back in the 1980s. One of these threatening letters was sent to Jean-Jacques Basque, the public prosecutor in charge of the Gregory case. The letter stated, For little Gregory, you'll never know the truth. There is a bag waiting for you. The bag in this letter refers to the suicide of Judge Lambert, who was found with a plastic bag around his head. This statement would lead some to believe that Judge Lambert in fact had been murdered and had not taken his own life. DNA analysis of these new letters sent to various individuals do show that they are all coming from the same person, but whoever that person is remains unknown. However, the DNA on these new letters do not match any samples collected in the initial investigation of Gregory's death. This would suggest that the person behind these new letters is most likely not the same person who harassed the Villeman family for years. But it is unknown whether this new author is simply a copycat or someone taking directions directly from the true crow. At this point, much about the Gregory affair remains a mystery. The most recent indictments do offer perhaps an eventual resolution to the case. The investigation has determined that there are inconsistencies to the story of Marcel and Jacqueline Jacob, the great uncle and aunt of Gregory, and that neither have been able to produce a confirmed or substantiated alibi for the evening of the murder. The prosecutors also state that Marcel Jacob had occasionally angry encounters with Jean-Marie, and that he had been known to call Jean-Marie the chief, just as the crow had done in numerous letters. 
The summary of the investigator's current theory so far states that Marcel Jacob and his wife Jacqueline conspired with Jean-Marie Villemin's half-sister Jeanette to abduct and murder four-year-old Gregory. Marcel Jacob was on very bad terms with Gregory's father, Jean-Marie, but the Jacob couple was also very close to Bernard LaRoche. It is believed that the team was able to manipulate and use Bernard LaRoche, exploiting his own hatred of Jean-Marie, into kidnapping Gregory. The police believe that Bernard was not aware of the fatal outcome reserved for Gregory, but instead thought that his involvement was only limited to kidnapping. Muriel Boll, the half-sister of Bernard LaRoche, was also indicted and taken into custody during this time. This came about when a first cousin of Muriel, who had never been interviewed before previously in the case, came forward and stated that they were aware that Muriel had been beaten and threatened by certain family members after she had accused Bernard LaRoche. It could be that these threats from the family convinced Muriel to go back on her testimony so that she would state that the police had coerced the false confession. While the police seemed convinced of the credibility of this new testimony, Muriel's Bull's lawyers state that this new information is not enough to keep her under custody. While the investigation continues, the prosecution is sticking by its theory. A report in 2017 states, We can say that Bernard LaRoche is the author of the kidnapping of Gregory Villeman, October 16, 1984. The investigation also believes that the subsequent murder of Gregory was carried out by a second team, perhaps that of Marcel and Jacqueline Jacob. The investigation believes that Muriel Bowles' first testimony was the correct one about her accounts of riding with Bernard to go pick up Gregory, and that she was there when Bernard then drove and dropped off Gregory. Her recanting of this testimony was brought on by threats of violence or even death from the other family members involved in the conspiracy. Though the investigation hopes that they are closing in on the truth, with the amount of time that has passed and the relative lack of physical evidence, many fear that the truth behind the Gregory affair will never be fully revealed. The identity of the Crow who harassed the Villeman family for years, and who or how many people were actually behind the abduction and murder of Gregory, perhaps will never be solved. As for the family of Gregory, they have done their best to keep moving on with life. Jean-Marie and Christine Villeman are still together, and they have had three children in the aftermath of their dark past, who are now successful adults. About his son, Jean-Marie Villeman said, Gregory was lively, tender. He grew up in happiness. You always had to eat lollipops with him, and he danced to Michael Jackson music. He was a marvelous child. For the countless people who have been intrigued by the Gregory affair over the years, and what has become one of the biggest criminal cases that France has ever known, the truth behind Gregory's fate, for now, remains a mystery. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you have your own thoughts or feedback about the mysterious case of the Gregory affair, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to write into the podcast. You can reach us by our email at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow and get in contact with the podcast through our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everybody.